The first scripture that was read for us this morning is out of 2 Chronicles. <clears throat> and if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to read a little bit of it again. Because there's a... Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, there's phrases that can stick out with you and kind of stay with you sometimes, that grip you a little more than others, that can stand out just a little bit. <clears throat> and as uh, you might have heard Todd read for us this morning, in 2 Chronicles it said, The glory of the Lord filled the temple. I've been to, uh, the holiday season coming up, I'm sure plenty of y'all are aware of Black Friday shopping. We're so obsessed with shopping, we gave it its own little holiday. And I, I've been to plenty of uh, stores on Black Friday that were very busy, very packed. I don't think I've been to any store or anywhere that was so filled with the glory of the Lord that I could not go inside. And so I just, I, I, I read that, and it struck me. I was trying to imagine what that would look like. So if you have your Bibles, as I said, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And I'm just going to read for us again verses 1, uh, 1, 2, and 3. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord that filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. If you're not familiar with the, the story of Solomon, he, he finished the project that his father David started, and that was constructing a permanent temple, a worship place for the people of Israel. And uh, <clears throat> they, they had laid it out according to the dimensions, and it was supposed to be in proportion to the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, and there was a veil, there was a, a space set aside for the presence of God. And when they, they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, it said, <clears throat> the text tells us that the Lord was so pleased with what had been done that like a pillar of fire, it came down and filled the temple. I just want us to try and imagine that because I, I know there's probably some of you who have helped maybe on a mission trip rebuild somebody's house. or Maybe you helped build a church. Maybe you helped build this church. Not sure how old that is or how might have just dated a few of y'all in the audience. But if, if you've ever helped somebody build a church or any sort of structure, imagine your toil and your labor and your, and your time and your blood and your sweat and your tears. And then when you're done, you, you sit back and you can see the presence of God fill that building. That's a powerful image. And as I said, I've, I've been a lot of places, but I don't think I've ever been anywhere that I saw the presence of God filling somewhere. And, and the text tells us that in verse 2, the priests, the, the, the sort of holier ones, the, the ones who are clean, the ones who perform the rituals to cleanse themselves and consecrate themselves and to make themselves be ready for the presence of God, could not enter in. A lot of times when we're reading the Bible, I, I, I always get the impression that the presence of the Lord is kind of a spiritual thing. And we know in the Old Testament there's all sorts of crazy events that would be very foreign to us, like the burning bush, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, and the, the many ways that God appears to people that would be very unusual to us today. But just this idea, they could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. As I said, I've, I've never, never seen a space be so filled with the presence of God that I could not go inside of it. 
And I think truthfully, if you're anything like me, you, you can sometimes go days, weeks, months, and years without seeing the presence of God in anything. We can fall out of touch with God. I know I can. I know I do. I'm reminded of uh, friends in high school. You know when you're in high school and you got you think these people are your best friends and you're going to know them the rest of your life and you're thinking all your kids are going to grow up together because you made each other little friendship bracelets and you signed each other's yearbook and you're like, oh, we're going to keep in touch and you gave each other your, your phone numbers so you could call each other and, and then years go by and you're suddenly sitting at home like five, six, seven years later and you're scrolling through Facebook and you're like, oh, whatever, whatever happened to them? We would be best friends. You can fall out of touch with God. It doesn't always happen immediately. It, it rarely happens consciously, but just sort of life happens, right? You fall out of touch. You stop communicating. You stop reaching out. You start devoting time. You start setting aside a place in your schedule to make time for God. You can fall out of touch with God. Thankfully, the Bible writes on this topic, and in fact, if you, if you have in your Bibles, the next scripture I'd like us to look at is when Paul addresses the Christians in Rome, he wrote a letter to the Christians in Rome. In fact, he titled it Romans. Um, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me again to, to Romans 10. Because Paul is writing to these uh, the Christians in Rome. And in uh, verses 1 through 3, he touches on a few different things that I, I want us to look at. Because I think they represent some of the ways that we can fall out of touch with God once we've become Christians. And so as I said, in Romans chapter 10, and I'm going to read... Uh, Verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul starts off in verse 1. And he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I had a, I had a theology teacher who would, who would end every class and he'd say, I want all of you to know I care about you, I love you, and I'm praying for you by name. And that just kind of hit me a little bit differently. I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm from a part of the country where if I tell someone I'll pray for you, it doesn't always exactly have the meaning that we might think it does. But if, I, if I, someone's talking to me about something and I say, well, I'm going to pray for you. But if someone says, I'm praying for you by name, it hits different. It strikes you as a little bit different. There's, there's, an, there's an intimacy to that. And I think sometimes when we're praying, we can, we can find ourselves getting complacent, getting stagnant, getting repetitive, getting, getting old. <laughs> you ever find yourself having the same conversation with God? You sit down and you and pray for this and pray for this. Or have you ever been at uh, Thanksgiving's coming up? Have you ever been at Thanksgiving or a family holiday where someone asked one of the younger cousins or one of the younger brothers to say a prayer and they sit there and they're like, I thank you, God. Amen. We can get old in our prayer. In fact, again, I hope this isn't a regional thing, but growing up in the church, I didn't know you could say, God, guard, and direct us in a different order. I'd only ever heard God, guard, and direct us just like that. I didn't even know what those words meant individually. Because that's, I just thought when you prayed, that's what you asked God to do. Please God guard direct us and forgive us when we send amen. We can get repetitive in our prayers. It happens. 
If I get repetitive in my conversations with somebody, that can happen in the rest of our life too. You just you pass them in the hallway and say, hey, how's it going? Oh, you know, good. Okay. You don't grow close to that person. When you're having repetitive or, or one-sided at times conversations, it's very easy to get repetitive and to get complacent in your relationship. I, I mentioned that, that sometimes we can just kind of tell somebody, well, I'll pray for you. But prayer is not really meant to be the sort of throwaway thing. Prayer is, prayer is God's desire for us to have a, have a closeness, to have a conversation. And I think sometimes we make it sort of a, a thing we do. You know, we, we pray to God the same way that we ask people how their day was. I don't really care how your day is when you ask somebody like that, right? Just kind of what you say. It's a conversation starter. Hey, how's it going? And of course, heaven forbid you ask somebody who actually had a terrible day and they want to talk about it. You're like, oh, no, I got, I got to be somewhere. I'm sorry. That's, I, I really didn't. You didn't care, right? You're just you're saying it because that's what you do. <laughs> but, but we can bring that kind of complacency to God. God doesn't want that. God doesn't need that. He certainly don't need it. He definitely doesn't want it. Paul starts off and he says, It's my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I would challenge us to pray for people that we want to be saved. It hits different when you tell somebody and you begin to pray for somebody by name. It does. The second, the second thing I want us to look at in Paul's writings and in ways that we can fall out of touch with God is he says, For I bear witness them, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I don't know anything about this, but did you know there's some people who don't need coffee to get up in the morning? Or for church, they just get up and they get up and they're ready to go find the nicest clothes. They put them on. They already ironed them the night before. And they already got their laundry done because they're just they're excited. Have you ever seen young people get back from church camp? They only know John three sixteen and Acts two thirty eight, but they're on fire for God. They have a zeal. They can name like six books of the whole Bible, but they're they're on fire. They've got passion. We've got to harness that passion without killing the zeal. You ever been in a football game with someone who just loves, they love their team, they're really excited, and, and I have a feeling this is going to hit a specific half of this audience, might be in another half, but you're there and you're with someone, and they jump up and they cheer, and they go, what happened? Or they, they just see somebody catch it, and they're running, and they're like, oh, and they're cheering, and they're screaming, you're like, no, you've got to sit down, that was an interception, that's not for us, that's a bad thing, you've got to... We can have zeal without knowledge. And so it's our job as Christians when we see other Christians have that zeal but have it without knowledge in the same way when you're taking your wife or I mean your friend or anybody to a, to a football game and they're not very concerned with what's going on and they want to be excited but they don't have the knowledge, you've got to harness that zeal. And you've got you to bestow the knowledge in a way that doesn't kill the zeal. Because if you do, if you... If you if you're harsh, or we go about the wrong way in trying to communicate the knowledge, we can kill someone's zeal. And when you kill that zeal, they fall out of touch with God. If you're rude to that person who's a fan who wants to be excited about the game, and you start maybe calling them names because you think it's kind of funny, and it is, admittedly, they don't want to go, right? If they're trying to be excited and plugged in and you're just telling them how they don't know anything, they don't want to go next week or next month. So you've got to find a way to harness the zeal and educate them without, without killing their passion. 
Paul says the, the second way that we can kind of, that I wanted us to learn from Paul's writings, that we can fall out of touch with God, is we can, we can have zeal without knowledge, and sometimes we begin to lose our zeal if we're not educated. The third one here is just simply from verse 3. Paul says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. See, when he starts off, he says, for being ignorant to the righteousness of God, and I think sometimes the, the word ignorant gets thrown around, uh, used out of context a little bit. When someone's ignorant, it's not their fault. I think we can use it in sort of a condescending manner, but if someone's ignorant, it's not always their fault. They're, they just don't know. All ignorant means is to not know. So when, when Paul starts off, I think he's just, that first little bit of verse 3 is really just the same as verse 2. They just don't have the knowledge. But they take it a step further. And he says, in seeking to establish their own, their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's. It's one thing to be ignorant. It's another thing to be prideful. In the same way that, that stagnancy in your prayer and, and just complacency in your relationship with God can have you fall out of touch with God. And in the same way that being on fire but not being very educated can make you fall out of touch with God. When you begin to establish your own righteousness and when you begin to establish what you think you should do, then you can really fall out of touch with God. And unfortunately, this last one, this idea of pride and establishing our own righteousness, I think is perhaps one of, the, one of the easiest traps of sin for us to fall in in the world we live in today. Because pride will creep up on you. It'll creep up on you because we actually live in a world that glorifies pride. Did you know that? All you got to do is flip on the TV and you'll see... Show after show or ad after ad about someone talking about all they did for themselves and all the things they did and how they got to where they are and how, how they made themselves very successful and they built up their own wealth. And you can do it too. You just got to go to the right school or take the right class or <clears throat> do all the right things and you can get to where they are because they, they built themselves up and they are where they are because of all the works they did and all the effort they put in. And you can do it too. And, and interestingly enough, usually their theories on how you can do it involve sending them money. And propping them up and helping them out. But we live in a world that glorifies pride. We do. It's easy for us, even as Christians, to get wrapped up in this idea that... And, and actually, we, we talked about a little bit about this in Joshua in our Bible class this morning. We talked about how pride corrupted the Israelites. And how when you start having a little bit of success, it's easy to start thinking, I did that. One of the reasons the presence of God filled the temple when Solomon had completed building it, when, and everybody, that, 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 the people who had built the temple, one of the reasons the presence of God came to the temple is because Solomon didn't sit back. We call it Solomon's temple because he built it. When he, when he built it, he didn't step back and write his name on the top. He didn't sit there and go, man, I did an awesome job. He didn't sit there and, and, and boast about what he had done. He gave the credit to God. He gave the glory to God. The, the two-edgedness of pride is that when it doesn't work, we can be really hard on ourselves. 
Or we can be really hard on other people. Because, see, when I'm in control of my own life and when I have the ability to change my life, then when my life isn't going so great, then whose fault is it? When I'm in control of my life, I can have a lot of anxiety about whether or not I'm making the right decisions. But if I can let go, and it's not on me to figure out what my purpose is in life, if my purpose in life has already been set for me, if my plan for life has already been written and already been called, and it's on me to obey, it's a little easier. But we live in a world that says if, if you go to the right school and you get the right job and you work hard enough and you make the right connections, you can do really well for yourself and your wealth and your family. But unfortunately, and the reality that we have to face sometimes as Christians, is there's people who went to the same schools you did and didn't get the right job. They turned in the homework. They got the same grades. They spent the same sleepless nights the night before the test trying to cram to get everything right like you did. Like I did. But they didn't get into the right school. Or they didn't get the right job. Or there's, there's people who went to the same jobs you did. And, and they put in the same hours you did. And they were there at 7 and left at 5. And took short lunches and didn't take extra breaks. And they busted their tail just like you did. But they got laid off. When the economy turned down, they, their number got called. The world will tell you that some people are just lucky. But those people who, because we even know, just like there's the people who work hard and it still doesn't work out, we all know those people who don't work hard and it still works out. And the world would tell us, well, some people are just lucky. And some people are just unlucky. If you're a Christian, we don't believe in luck. If you're a Christian, we don't believe in luck. We believe in grace and we believe in mercy. And we know that we are where we are. Because God chose not to give us what we actually deserve. We spent a lot of time talking about grace over the last few weeks and, and this year. And we all know what we deserve as Christians. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. So as a Christian, I understand that I'm not lucky. That if I have a job, that if I'm able to, to make ends meet at the end of the month, to feed my family, to put some food on the table, and maybe have a little bit extra to put in my pocket when I go home at night, I know that's not from me. I know that's from God. But it's easy to lose track of where that comes from because we live in a world that glorifies pride. But we're not supposed to be like the world. And truthfully, whether we feel weak in our prayer life or we just feel uninformed, right, without knowledge, or we're uncertain of where to direct our energies, and, and we get a little lost or a little confused and things get a little hazy. And before we know it, we've just completely outright rejected what God wants for our life. And we've substituted what we want for our life instead. All of those kind of have the same solution. And it's my challenge for us this week as we go through about our lives. I challenge you to be intentional in your Christianity. I challenge you to be intentional in your prayer. I challenge you to be intentional seeking out knowledge to fill that zeal that you might have. And guess what? If you don't have zeal, you can still be intentional. Maybe you need to be more intentional because you don't have zeal. I've never gotten in my car in the morning and just ended up at work. I don't think that's ever happened. 
For those of you who, who are families and where you both got jobs and you've got kids and the kids are in school and they got extracurriculars and, and then one of you asks the other, hey, can you, can you do the dishes or can you mother the yard? And if you just say, well, I'll get to it. Does that work? Maybe it works. It doesn't work in my house. If we're busy, if I said I'll mow the yard eventually, I'll do the dishes eventually, I'll vacuum eventually, I'll get to it. We've all got a ton of free time in our weeks that we just throw stuff in, right? No. But we tell God, I'll get to it. But we tell God, I'll put you in my free time. I'll fit you into my schedule. I'll get to it doesn't work. You've got to be intentional in your walk with God, in your prayer, in your knowledge, in your reading, in your worship, in your fellowship. You've got to be intentional in your walk with God. When God calls for us to give him the first fruits, he doesn't say give me what's left in your wallet after you pay all the bills. The first fruits is off the top. Uncle Sam gets it off the top. We know that. Anybody who's looked at their pay stuff knows the government's getting theirs off the top. I'd love, to, I'd love for taxes to come last out of my check. <laughs> I'd love for taxes to be taken out of my check on the 31st of every month after I've paid all the bills. They can have 10, they can have 20% of whatever's left over, right? They get off the top. Sometimes God gets what's left. He gets what's left of our, our money. And that's, that's really not what this sermon is about. Because truthfully, it's, it's much easier for us to give off the top financially than it is sometimes for us to give off the top of our energy and of our time and of our, our thoughts. Sometimes it's easier to tithe off the top than it is to actually sit down and say, you know what, God, I'm going to make time in my schedule to read your word. I'm going to make time to focus on you. I'm going to make time to talk to other people about you. But when he says, give me your first fruits, he's not just talking about what you make. He's talking about what you do, how you spend your time, how you live your life. God wants the first fruits of your life, too. And so I challenge us this week to be intentional in our walk with God. <clears throat> Athletes, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Babe Ruth, Roger Staubach. <coughs> These guys didn't show up on Sunday or Saturday or Tuesday. Say, we'll see what happens. Probably shoot the ball around, throw a few passes, run a few. We'll see what happens. <clears throat> no. You know why? Because they want to win. They want to be successful in what they set out to do. So they practice and they make a plan, and when they show up, they execute that plan. But a lot of us don't want to practice. We don't want to practice, and we want to blame God when it doesn't work. <laughs> we got to be intentional. The Bible tells us that God is a jealous God. He says, you will have no other gods before me. God does not accept a top three or a top five finish. He wants to be first and he wants to be alone. I challenge us this week as we get into the, the busy season of the holidays and as things just start moving real quickly and we get towards next thing we know it's Christmas and we got family coming over and then it's the end of the year and then we got to start right back around at the beginning of next semester and do it all over again. We can get lost in the shuffle. I challenge us to be intentional in our walk with God, to be intentional in our prayer, to be intentional in seeking knowledge and to empower us with our zeal for God. And I seek us to be intentional in avoiding pride. It's really easy to 
start thinking we are the reason for what we did in our lives and the world that we live in. If you're here today, it is our custom to offer the invitation to you to renew your zeal, to begin a relationship with God, to, to restart your relationship with God, to cleanse your relationship with God. There's nothing, you, there's nothing you've done that God can't wash away. The Bible lays out a simple process. He just asks that you repent, that you confess your sin, and you be baptized. If you have any need of the church and there's anything we can do for you, we ask that you come forward and make this known at this time while we stay in the sin.